0: Rainier Wilde is on the podcast today and you, my love, are in for a treat. He is a highly sought-after mentor and author. He wrote As You Are: Meditations on Self and Other and is one of the most profound speakers I have encountered in this lifetime. I actually was in tears about 3 minutes into this episode, so you may want some tissues handy. Um be ready to move and be moved. Please, if you have a moment, I would so appreciate it if you left us a five-star review and a written review as that will allow this episode to be viewed and witnessed and uh, just encountered by a plethora of new people. So please do get on that. Thank you again for being present with us today. Without further ado, let's get Altered with Rainier Wild. Hi, Rainier. I am so honored to have you. I was saying before this episode began... um, just what a privilege it is to witness your work um, in your book as you are online. I was fortunate enough to um, do that course with Kelsey Grant two years ago. And I know it was two years ago because it was mutually met. And then I met the love of my life. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, it was pretty lit. So, and you, you've been um, just such a teacher for me. So just thank you for coming on. I'm really grateful.
1: It's my pleasure. You know, I love being able to track with people over time and, and, uh, you know, let's just make this a mutual gush fest. I've, I've enjoyed seeing you and your trajectory and your, your work and what you put out into the world. Um, I've just really been honored to get to connect however. And so I'm happy to be here today.
0: Awesome. Well, you're a guide, a teacher, a writer, uh, phenomenal linguist uh so your your words are like precious little gems that i'm just like i I want to eat them up um but i I really am excited to share some meaningful things for our audience this is a real rebrand of this podcast um i stopped my old one we're starting this new one it's called altered Mm. because when we lay ourselves at the altar of life and we show up as we are, we tend to get altered. And so I'd love to hear from you a moment that altered you, uh, a moment that really kind of shifted a paradigm shift, a holy shift. And what did you have to lay down at the altar in order for that shift to be altered?
1: Wow. You know, I think that it's so, it's so funny to me how the mind to go to these very seminal moments I mean that's part of what an altar is part of part of the historic nature of altars is that you would erect them uh, and that that you would come back to them over and over and remember them right i mean you would mm-hmm. you would be locked into kind of a memory of what happened then and there. And so it's natural that we reapproach those places over and over again, those places that were so meaningful. But there is a bit of a temptation to go back to the, to the one that happened five years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And I particularly noticed that temptation. You know, I, I even as soon as you asked that, I wanted to go back to a very familiar place that happened, you know, over seven years ago that was so pivotal for me and so transformational. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I did that, I thought, no 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 no. that's just resting on my laurels there's places closer to home there's places that are actually more uh, here and now Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular uh, this last January January of this last year uh, my father died quite unexpectedly and um, and I'm looking in the window of that room and I'm seeing myself and my siblings in that room surrounding him i'm seeing my mother his wife of 55 years curled up on the bed with him and she's cradling him as a as a a parent would cradle a child and she's saying to him please 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 don't go mm. and and he was a a recording uh, a, a songwriter and a, a singer who recorded and his album was playing in the background and he's singing to himself. And there's this moment and it brings tears to my eyes when I, uh, I look over and I see my sister and she's also kind of willing him to stay. And my brother is broken hearted near me. And I look down and I see the breath has stopped. And I say, he's going, he's going. And in that beautiful moment where the lightness of his earthly body was just laying there, you suddenly realize how transcendent life is, how, how shimmering and ephemeral and how, how it's so brief. Now all the things that we make it, <laughs> all the amazing things that we make it, really don't matter. I, I thought in that moment as I as he was leaving us, I I thought how all those boundaries that I drew, that I I knew I needed to draw, damn it, all of those clear, convicted statements I made that he needed to know, how none of them mattered. Oh my God, none of it mattered. The only thing that mattered was that thing I, I kept on reflecting just two days prior. The last words he said to me, maybe even the last words he said at all before he began to slip into a coma, he said, I love you, kid. I'm so proud of you. Man, I tell you, it puts things in a perspective. So you asked me a moment that that changed me. It wasn't five years ago or 15 years ago. It was even a whole hell of a lot closer than that. Yeah. A moment where love is all that there is.
0: Just allowing that to land for a second. That's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> we get so, just caught right in the um, stories of the extra things. Ram Das talks about this all the time. He was basically what we'd currently call a death doula yeah. for many years and There was a story where there was this woman who was maybe in her 30s dying of um, some sort of cancer that had gone to her bones and she was lying there writhing in pain. He walks in and he was so startled by the amount of pain she was in. He kind of started doing this whole, oh, I'm Ram Dass, I'm doing the dance of walking you through death. And then once he dropped it, once he dropped the, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing all this stuff to, because it's a lot, it's a lot. And he dropped it and they could just be together. And when they could just be together, she was just able to feel safe. She was feeling safe to go. She was feeling safe to stay. It was either way, but it, it, man, we love to do these dances, don't we?
1: We do. And I think that, that, that thing that you're pointing to, which, Really is one of the takeaways that I I hold from that entire experience. That quality of witness, right? And I, I think that that transfers to so much of our life. I was just reading uh, the the letters between Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, two great existentialists, and. She's talking about how when he returned from the prison of war camp that he was in during World War II, he returns to Paris and um, there was something unusual about him. And what was unusual about him was that he preferred infinitely the experience he had in the prison of war camp to his return to a Parisian cafe. And, and he responded why he said in the camp. The only boundary I had was the boundary of my own skin. I was free to reach over and lay my head against my brother's shoulder and Um. say, we are comrades together. But here in the cafe, I am seated next to a man who may as well distance himself an eternity from me. Yeah. And so what he's pointing out is that that we've arranged this world in a very strange way where there's there's anything but witness, And it almost
0: takes a death
1: to bring us together or a prison of war camp.
0: As you were speaking about your father, it hits so deeply um, and I feel inclined to share. I had a similar journey with my mother and I really walked beside her as she was leaving. And the day before she died, she really wanted to be outside. And it was early in the morning, and it was just her and I, and I didn't have the ability to carry her down by myself. And so I opened up the windows (laughs) and I put her by the window. um, And I said, Why don't we just sit here together? And I got her coffee and put it in her favorite china. And we just sat there, and I could feel her breathing with the awareness that this is it. Yeah. And feeling the breeze on her skin with the awareness that this is it. And drinking that coffee with the awareness that this is it and this is it and the next day it was it. Right? Yeah. And there, and we were just with. You're, you're just like... Again, blowing my mind. Why is it always these simple truths that are so hard to grasp? You know, Tell me. Know, <laughs> <right>. Tell me.
1: <laughs> I, I think that's a, that's a, a kind of a funny comment because the reality is that um, that it that those are the hardest things. Yeah. my 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 brother-in-law has like six degrees of a black belt in taekwondo and i remember one time (laughs) trying to make conversation with him by asking him like what were the hardest moves you learned he 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 looked over at me and i'll never forget how he answered he said the moves i learned the first day yeah wow those are the hardest moves and and I, I think that those rather simple things that we learned the first day, like the moment we locked eyes with our caregiver, right, right? And where we begin to build those those interesting nervous system attachments, those those things, how to be with others, how to be with ourself, how to how to be alone well, how to be together well, uh, how how to how to armor up and how to take the armor off over and over and and we're ill-equipped we really are because we we overlearn lessons right and so you know we take a a right hook in the last fight we spend the whole next you know 10 fights always looking off for the right hook we miss the left cross every time right we overlearn our lessons and a lot of us learned lessons as kids that that, you know, it's like they applied as kids, just like a lot of, you know, prisoners or inmates might learn lessons in prison, but they just don't apply out in the rest of the world. And so now here you are, you're a partner, someone who learned some real great lessons as, as a kiddo. They just don't apply in the partnership anymore. We keep replaying the same plays even they don't work.
0: How do we learn to be with? How do we learn? How do you practice being with?
1: You know, I think if my wife were here, she would probably tell you, uh, that I'm still learning is first of all, uh, to honest to God, true, uh, not that we have already attained, uh, but I, I will tell you that, that for me, and, and also again, if she were here, I think she'd reflect this. I think that the quality of being with has been exceptionally difficult for me across the years. Because I wasn't able to be with myself. Not well. Not well. Uh, And the moment I began to be with myself, to actually experience myself as a self, and to be comfortable in the presence of who that was, the minute I was able to do that, I was actually able to let someone else touch me and not flinch. I spent a lot of my time flinching when other people touched me or, or looking away when they looked me in the eyes. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, last year I, I was, uh, in Crete, the island off of Greece. And I met with a, a gentleman who was, was Greek and I will spare you my bad Greek impersonation, uh, mainly because of the company I'm in, but you know, and, and I, 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 but, but I loved something he said, First of all, he he said that that uh things like coaches and mentors and therapists and even lumped in priests and pastors into this were bullshit occupations. He was very opinionated about this and and I uh I didn't um, exactly know what to say. I kind of froze. I was like, oh, oh my god, uh there's a whole lot of us who you just swept under the rug there. Uh what do you mean? And he said, Well it's a bullshit job. He said, Because the truth is we shouldn't need these things. We shouldn't need these. But we do. And then he kind of brightened up and said, But but we we're kind of addicted to bullshit. So so we need these bullshit jobs. And so I we, we were both chuckling and he said, But I'll tell you what's better than any of those is the ability to look in the mirror and keep looking and keep looking. And not look away until you recognize the person you see in the mirror and you are no longer afraid of them. And you fall in love. Now that's a hell of a practice. That's a hell of a therapist. Mirror work. And I hear people talk about mirror work and I think it's actually a lot more literal than we make it out to be. It actually is looking in the mirror. The windows are the eyes to the soul. It's looking into the windows of your soul. And it's beginning to see it and not be afraid of what you see. So you ask the question, well, how do we learn with this? Well, like a lot of things, I think it actually starts internally. Mm-hmm. And so I practice that internal witness. And one of the things I do is I simply look in the mirror every day and I begin to get really comfortable and not have to change a single blessed thing.
0: That process of accepting that radical acceptance Talk to me a little bit about that and how that's really informed your ability to look in the mirror and inevitably be with.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I was I was just with uh, a, a client today who um, who he noted that he was hypercritical of many things in the world, in himself even, but, but specifically in others and in the world. And we noted how that hyper-critical nature had been so wonderfully protective of him. How actually he had this other side, which was highly performative, that wanted to please and and would exhaust himself if others asked him to. And and how that hyper-critical nature had often um, put a wedge in between those things which he would have simply depleted himself in order to serve. And how even this thing which he doesn't like about himself, the hypercritical nature, actually had served him a great many times. And I think that when we come to something like radical acceptance, what it almost always is, is acknowledging that things I often don't even like about myself have actually been tremendously useful and actually aren't aberrations. They're not monstrous. They're not monsters. Not usually. I've, I've still yet to meet a monster. I met a lot of people, but there are things that have served us. They may not be today. We may have to make changes. Radical acceptance, at its heart, is not radical. How would I say this? It's not radical approval, but it is radical acknowledgement. It's saying mm. this is, and it serves a purpose.
0: Mm. Beautiful. I, my mother was a therapist, and she said that she's only had one client ever like walk out of a session and never come back and she she was proposing to this client that everything has a payoff otherwise yeah. we wouldn't do it right yeah. and it's that you know like oh my anorexia had a payoff oh it kept me figuratively and literally small my da 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 had a payoff and people just like some people really don't want to take any accountability or they want to stay kind of in victimhood or stay stuck sometimes being stuck is great (laughs) for a second.
1: Absolutely. And I think especially as kids, we learned the value of not taking responsibility. We learned the value of being stuck and allowing someone else to do all the heavy lifting. I mean, what kid do I know? And I have had four of, in the process of raising four of them. I've got to be honest, that's a really great thing. I mean, you know, I can let mom and dad do it. I can let my older siblings do it or my younger siblings do it. It's a really great move. But at some point in life, we really have to start to say, you know, I may not have created this, but I'm the one who actually has to change. I'm the only one who can change it. I'm the only one who can begin to do the heavy lifting. At some point, it becomes profoundly uninteresting to not take responsibility for your life.
0: Yes. Yeah. So good. I'd love to pivot a little bit and talk about men in particular, because, you know, there's a lot of you, you you guys around. Um, and I know that you do so much relational work in general. Um, but of course, selfishly, I have a male partner, so we're going to talk about men for a second. (laughs) Oh, good. What, what do you think, what do you believe, after working with so many men for so many years, men are really voraciously hungry for in their lives? What are they, what are they missing and what do they need?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think first of all, I would say we're so rarely uh, capable translators of our own needs. I, I don't actually think we know them very well. There were a lot of times i I said I needed sex, and what I really needed was someone to hold me. Mm. you know there were a lot of times I said I needed space, and what I actually wanted was withness mm. we We so rarely know ourselves deeply, mm. so first of all, I would say like just because a man tells you this is what he really wants doesn't actually mean that's what he really wants or what he really needs. Mm. What I will tell you is what I hear a lot of men say they want, and then i'll I'll tell you what I think a lot of men actually need.
0: Uh, please. I, I
1: hear a lot of men say that what they really want, what they, what they really, really need and what they really need their, their partner, or their person to get is they just need a little sweetness, baby. They just need a little tenderness. Can't you, can't you just be nice to me for once? Oh my God. Can we not have this hard conversation again? Can you not explain this again? Can, you not, can we just go out on a date and not have to talk? Can we just, can we please, this is something I hear in whether it's, you know, couples work that that I do or working with men or women. Uh, It's rather repeated. God, I've said it myself. Please, I just need a little tenderness. Try a little tenderness. Mm -hmm. I think that that is acknowledging something. What I, I, I think it's acknowledging is that the world is hard and if we're not being reinforced men and women if we're not being reinforced for the efforts we're giving we're going to become resentful over time i think that uh, i think that when you have all of the responsibility or when you're given a lot of responsibility but aren't also given reinforcement for taking responsibility It's probably going to build that resentment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of why I hear men saying, I just want a little tenderness. I just want Uh a little sweetness. Please have a little compassion. But what I actually think most men need, what I actually think most men want, what I actually think most men have to have, uh, especially in today's society, is not sweetness Is not this genteel kind of white kid glove treatment? It's actually to be able to do the hard work of being fully authentic to who they are and what they are, and completely open, and you not run for the hills. I think most men aren't as scared of commitment as a lot of their partners imagine, or the people who are prospectively their partners. I think that men are just scared to actually show themselves (sighs) and for you to run. So if I'm going to commit to something that feels like inauthenticity or feels like death, I'm going to not commit at all. I think men deeply crave authenticity at, at a core level. And I think we can't, we often feel like we can't in today's world Mm. be authentic.
0: Mm. Yeah. Why do you think men feel like they can't be fully authentic?
1: Well, the thing I I hear a lot is they'll be punished for it. Mm. Uh, They'll be uh, prosecuted for it. It's not going to be convenient or that kind of prosecutor's gotten in their own mind. They shouldn't think that. I, I shouldn't have that thought. I shouldn't have that want. I shouldn't have that need. I think. I think a, a core reality, and this gets back into the idea of what do men really need. I do think that men need to uh, to have an experience of emotional and mental fortitude which leads to Uh. resilience. I think they actually need to have some tough things happen to them. So it's kind of the opposite of sweetness. They actually (laughs) need to go through the initiation where they confront their own mortality and they say life is hard and so am I. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, they will be flaccid, they will be limp, they'll constantly be seeking their own comfort. I mean, this is why tribes, you know, for time immemorial created initiatory rites for, for young adolescent males, mm-hmm. right? Because they were actually saying, you need to confront this principle, this comfort-seeking principle in your life. Otherwise, we can't trust you. And I think a lot of women are saying that today where they're saying, I can't trust you. When things get hard, you run for the hills. You stop being authentic. You stop being true Mm. when it gets hard. Mm -hmm. And so if I had to say, what do men want? Well, men actually want authenticity and then therefore what they really need is to actually be confronted with the toughness of life and their ability to meet it head on.
0: Mm-hmm. We need some sun dancers up in here.
1: <laughs> we need some – that is exactly it.
0: That's really it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. At, at its core, I think that archetype of the masculine is really non-reactive conscious energy. It's a, it's a non-reactive conscious energy that's directive, it's assertive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's cause and effect, it's very, very focused. And if he doesn't learn how to go through hard things, he'll never be able to penetrate
0: the world. Yeah, That was such a huge touchstone for me and what I wanted to really speak to you about because I feel like there's so much talk these days about polarity. Mm -hmm. And it's being thrown around like confetti quite a bit, but I don't think there's like a clear understanding of what that actually means and necessarily how we can embody polarity. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the masculine feminine polarity archetypes and how they dance together?
1: Yeah. I think that's such a great, a great topic. I, yeah, I think one of the things is we're just kind of generally missing what, archetypes are in general uh sam keen was a a writer who wrote about men's issues in the early 90s during a movement called the expressive men's movement he he talked about people as biomythic animals like we're part story and we're part blood and bone Hmm. and archetypes are really uh the stories that humanity has told for as long as we've been human that have worked their way into our biology. Mm. Marion Woodman actually defined archetypes this way. She said, the archetype is more than everyday human energy. It's an energy that bursts through from some sacred place, Mm. demonic, angelic. It bursts into flame from somewhere inside of us. Mm. And so I think archetypes, rightfully understood, are are things that are present in us even when we didn't ask for them. Right. They're there. They're images that are largely unconscious, and they connect to us, and they bind human experience together. It's not like you and I are having these archetypal experiences or images or, or core aspects and someone on the other side of the world isn't. It really does govern the human experience. And we need these. They connect us to ourselves, and, and we kind of find our bearings again and again. But, but Jung had an important thought about archetypes. And, and this is really the context of why I'm sharing this. Jung said that archetypes often cage us and bind us until we became aware of them. Mm-hmm. And once we become fundamentally aware of them, we can become free of them. They mm-hmm. stop controlling us. So think about the the most common archetype I hear about a lot is the shadow. Well, most of us would actually say, "God, I don't want to be controlled by my shadow. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be pushed around by my shadow. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example. but now I want to apply that same concept
0: mm-hmm. to the
1: masculine and feminine archetypes. I don't want to be pushed around by the masculine. I don't want to be pushed around by the feminine. What I want to do is I want to become so aware of these images and archetypes in myself that I'm no longer out of control, but rather I'm able to make conscious choices about what I give myself to. Right. So one truth is that we all have access to, to the archetypes. So the masculine and feminine are both of us. Right. We we leer or lurch towards one side or the other, depending upon our experiences. And often in this culture, it seems like more women are often defined by uh, a feminine archetypal principle. More men are historically defined by a masculine archetype, although that's shifting. I mean, yeah. one interesting thing is you, you often find women who say, I've been governed my whole life by the masculine archetype. And and men who will say, boy, I really got taught – when my mom taught me to be a nice guy, she really taught me how to be in my feminine most of my uh, life. Uh, yeah. So again, what are these principles? Well, again, we're talking about more than gender here. The feminine, if we could talk about what that is, the feminine at base level in me could be defined as that which is present moment, creative, demonstrative, emotive, networked. Responsive, relational, and in constant movement. So when, when someone's in touch with the feminine in, in the present moment, you hear phrases like, Oh, I'm just one with all that there is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just in my flow. Oh, I'm just surrendered to. That would be very much like the feminine in, uh, in a flourishing state.
0: Mm-hmm. When someone
1: is in touch with their masculine in the present, it's very sequential. It's like a laser beam. It's like, I'm so focused right now. Oh, you know, or like, um, please, please, please stop. Only one thing at a time. One thing at a time. I've got to focus, right? I I love this because you see it in sex especially with like women and men often, if they're locked into those aspects, like a woman can be mid orgasm and she's like, Oh, it's the universe and it's all coming through me. And, <laughs> and a man, and a man is like, um, first I do this and then I do this and then hey. I do this and now it's done. Thank you. I'm going to move on. I'm good. Yeah. Can we focus here? Uh, <laughs> and I so the, the principle of opening very feminine in nature, the principle of of um, I'll use that word penetrative or focused is very much the masculine essence. Part of part of that that dichotomy is a softening, or or um, that's that opening word in the feminine, the softening, that flow, and for the masculine, it's actually to harden. It's it's to it's to push against. It's to push into. One of the great feminine virtues, one of the great values that being in the feminine gives is faith. Oh, I'm open. I have faith. I know this will work. Oh. And one of the great masculine virtues is doubt. Mm. I'm not convinced. This plus mm. this doesn't add add up to this. Mm. And so we see that there's this beautiful dance between the two, and they really need each other, and even more than they need each other. I need both of them, and I need to know when to touch down on what.
0: Into that. Yeah, that's the I think that's part of the missing piece that I keep hearing is it's like, okay, women are only in their feminine. That's what we want them to be. And we want our men to only be in the masculine and be the container and the women can soften. And it's like, yes, okay, of course. Like we do want that that ebb and that flow, but like there's definitely a time and a space for each of us to embody each one. Um that's wildly powerful. Yeah,
1: I I I mean, think about it. Like if 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 we can't embody each one if we can't have access to that then we're kind of doomed to this constant searching for the perfect polarized partner right right which is great for intimacy coaches it's so good you know for for couples therapists because they will simply help you forever Get the perfect partner. So maybe have you considered? Have you considered that you're out of polarity right now? I mean, right. maybe right. But but I, I think if we're not just trying to to you know prop up an industrial complex here, I think that we might actually acknowledge that we have access to these parts inside of us, and we have to. You know, if you're a a single woman, let's just say, and you really want to be connected to your own inner feminine, let's just say, I really want to be in my only in my inner feminine. You might find it then very hard to set goals. You might find it very difficult to actually make plans. You might find it hard to run a business or to – right? You're going to have to find your own internal masculine and your own inner masculine polarity in order to do that, to create space for your feminine. Yeah. Yeah. You can't simply choose. And then, and then once you're, once you're aware of it, oh my God, you can be free of it. You don't always have to be in slavish servitude Mm. to these aspects.
0: I'm going back to that impermanence, right? It's always just like this for now. It's always shifting, always changing. And I think the problem, at least I'm, I'm seeing it in my own life is when I spend too much time in, in one or the other. Yeah. Right. Like that's just when, chaos happens or blowout happens or exhaustion happens or rupture happens because I'm spending too much time in my masculine and I don't get to soften or I don't get, and it's my own stuff. Yeah. It's just that holding in one.
1: There's kind of an erraticism that kind of develops. If you're only in one, like it it looks a little erratic, like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, like uh, the, if, if uh, a man or a woman, I would say is overly in their masculine archetype. Um there's there's no sweetness, there's no softness, there's no gentleness. There's kind of like a like a a, wolf- a wolfish hunger, like almost a rapaciousness. There's an aggression. I think this is where we get like the werewolf archetype, right? It's like a man turns into a wolf and he's ravenous and he's devouring everything. If we're locked into our own internalized masculine too much, we actually like rage, aggression. Violence of word mm. or body that becomes or coldness.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love actually to talk a bit about rage and anger. It's such a repressed sensation and emotion that we just don't even give ourselves permission to fully invite it in, and mm-hmm. then it's bubbling, and then it comes out sideways in all sorts of peculiar behavior. How do we tend? How do you allow for anger to move through and? What do you see in Mm -hmm. the difference between men and women in that, in that space?
1: Well, every emotion, this is very curious. I think every emotion has what I would call a masculine aspect and a feminine aspect. If we use these guiding principles, anger is kind of no different. I would actually suggest that rage, which is very present moment oriented, Mm -hmm. um, and universalizing in its effect is actually very feminine. So people who you're seeing actually (laughs) enraged are usually locked in their feminine, whether they're the, 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 the truck driver, who's full on road raging you, (laughs) or, you know, they're the PTA head of the soccer moms club. Like that's a very feminine experience, right?
0: Full Kali Ma, like. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I, I mean, even, even the, the mythic archetypes, um, you know, where you look at mythology, they bear that out. I think almost mm-hmm. all of the goddesses of the or all the gods, the deities of the hunt and of war, the early ones were women. were totally. Were female okay. deities, right? And and there's yeah. there's this one that actually means like she who drips with the entrails of her uh, of her enemies. I mean, it's like <laughs> this terrifying image. Uh, it really is the feminine principle, and I think that yeah. that uh, so. Back to your question, you know, how do I give voice to anger? How do I give voice to rage? Well, first of all, I think that there's no bypassing an emotion. One of the reasons why I think we're really, um, a lot of people experience a cutoff from achieving goals or getting through hard things, whether they're women or men, is actually because they're cut off from their anger and the principle of anger. Um, Yes. Anger is an emotion we experience. When we're being blocked from a goal. So anger naturally occurs when a goal is blocked. So what do I need to do? Well, I need to come in contact with my anger. Now we would ask, well, what's an effective use of that anger? Is it effective for me to go over and hit someone in the face? Is it effective? Does it actually get me towards my goal? Well, maybe not. But maybe expressing it does. Maybe articulating that to someone does. Maybe being very clear with my words. Maybe drawing a boundary does. I also don't know. Maybe hitting them is the most appropriate thing. I'm willing to say it could be. Uh, but I think that there has to be, one, the recognition of what my experience is. Two, the the acknowledgement of what that emotion is inviting me to do. And then, three, asking, is this the most effective thing for the goal I wish to achieve?
0: Uh-huh. God, I love that. Yeah, I think there are definitely circumstances where hitting someone is totally appropriate. (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, Absolutely. Oh my God, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I I find that um, at least in my experience as a woman, I actually don't even necessarily realize the rage is there Mm. until it's like too late Mm. and it's stuffed. And it's like pushed. And then I'm like, how do I move this? Like, how Mm -hmm. do I, how do I allow this to move through me? Right. Like it comes up to come out, but if we don't let it come out, then it's just kind of like sitting in the body. Mm. What would you do?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're describing an experience that a lot of us have with various emotions, um, depending on what the emotion is, you're talking about anger. Some people might describe joy in a very similar way. Like I I don't notice the, I don't notice the moment where I could have had joy until it's already passed. I'm looking at the pictures and I find this nostalgia for it, which is the closest Mm. thing I can get to joy. Mm. Um, so I think that we all it's almost like a slippery red balloon that's like floating down a river and it's like you you wanna reach out and grab it, but it's like it floats by too fast. Um, I think sometimes that's how one of those emotions work. If I'm working with anger in particular, I think you have to prime the pump a little. Particularly because both for men and women Although these days, it's it's less so for women and more so for men. The negative effects of anger or the side effects of anger are so detrimental that we should never go near it. So here's how I explain it. My partner and I were just talking about this. It's kind of like, well, what I really want to do is throw a plate at you right now. I just really want to throw our good china at you. But then you start to think. You go, well, if I do that, I'm going to have to clean it up. (laughs) And so I don't want to clean it up. And so I'm not going to throw the plate at you. And you know what? If I'm not going to throw the plate at you, it's just not even fun to be angry. So I'm not even going to experience the emotion. So I'm just going to move on. Um. So what we have to distinguish is between the outcome that we don't want and the emotion that we do have. So we almost have to capture the moment. How we do that is we go, okay, okay. Bob has just said that I'm a real asshole. Yeah. Now, I don't feel anything when Bob says that. But gosh, when I stop to think about it, I notice that this is exactly the kind of situation where someone would be angry. Yeah. And so I recognize the situation, and instead of holding on to my numbness, I acknowledge that maybe I maybe I ought to feel something here. And so then I almost give it voice. I'm like, you know, gosh. I would feel totally valid, totally justified right now being angry. Mm. Gosh, right now, I, I, I want to be angry. Uh. And then you do this. You look at Bob and you go with or without the feeling attached. You say, Bob, right now, I am noticing that this is a situation that makes me totally angry. And you need to know that. And it's not okay. In other words, you almost uh. reverse engineer it. Uh. And you do that enough times until the emotion actually gets plugged in. And then Mm. you can feel it again.
0: A bit of a fake it till you make it moment. I think
1: that really is there, again, provided it's an effective thing according Mm. to your goals.
0: Well we can't think a feeling. Yeah. You know, we feel a feeling in our body, but in that way, it's yeah, it's kind of like what actors do. (laughs) You know, like To get into character, they're like, okay, like, this is what I'm experiencing. Where can I – oh, this would be. Oh, this is what it would be. This is – okay, now I can embody it. Here it is.
1: Yeah, you're not thinking your way into it, but you are throwing yourself into it. Mm. You're allowing yourself to say – and I think it is very kind of almost theatrical in that sense. Like, Mm. this is what it would look like. Mm. And you almost have to do that because we've been so shut off from them. Been so cut off from – whatever the thing is. Love is kind of like that, right? Sometimes we actually like, oh, I don't, I I just don't, I don't feel a spark for anyone or anything. And it's been 73 years and I just can't connect it. Okay.
0: Sometimes you just have to throw yourself in. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And let the stream carry you along downstream.
0: There's so much grief for me when I think of all the bypassing that I've done myself, but just like the surplus of bypassing that we've all done. It's like when we get to the end of our life, none of us are going to wish that we hadn't experienced something that I didn't feel that thing fully. Oh my God. By the end of the end of your life, you're like, God, breaking my leg was such a gift. What I would give to just break my leg one more time or get my heart broken. Oh God, it was so good. Here I go, you know, or, oh, falling in love. Oh my God. It's all so precious and wild and magnificent. It just goes back to that impermanence piece. You know, we just, we can't fully live until we realize and really like understand that we leave.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I, I really, I really think that, that this is the heart of it. You know, someone recently asked me, they said, what would you do if you, you woke up and, uh, and, not just woke up, but what <laughs> died and then, you know, <laughs> repopulated up in front of St. Peter's gates or whatnot. And, and you discover it's a video game. It's all been a video game. And I said, well, first of all, I'm pretty convinced that is the case. But, <laughs> but, but second of all, assuming that happens, I'll feel pretty damned happy if I've racked up all the coins on all the levels. But if I've left coins on the levels, I'm going to feel a lot of regrets. And how you rack up the coins is you have as many experiences to your core as you can. You feel it all. As you said, the heartbreak, the agony, the ecstasy, the love, the lust. You withhold yourself from nothing and give yourself to the experience of being human.
0: As you are. As you are. Yeah. The the day before my mother died, I, she was still fully conscious. So we had, you know, we had every conversation we needed to have or that it felt like we needed to have. And I asked her if she had any regrets. And she said, just one. Well, okay, tell me what's that? I wish I had fucked more people.
1: <laughs> Delightful.
0: So delightful and so human, and it goes back to this like puritanical shame that we have of this body of ours that we're not supposed to enjoy it and savor it and experience it and be in union with someone else. And it's just it like blows my mind. And I it, it was like one of the most precious things I've ever heard, and it also made me really sad because. She did. She waited until she was married. And she really like, she was very puritanical in that sense. And I know she wouldn't mind me saying it because it's, it was her regret. And I, I hope no one else leaves that on the table.
1: (laughs) Yeah, You know, I think that one of the, one of the really wonderful poets who has helped us see the need to live fully is Mary Oliver. And she's been such a gift and her poetry has been such a gift to so many of us. And I, I, as soon as you, you say that, I think of any number of her poems, um, that deal with death that deal with, with this waking up and recognizing that we don't want to just be breathing a little and calling it being alive, but particularly you're talking about, um, this idea of trading, substituting goodness and rightness for happiness, and they're not the same track, right? Like, rightness doesn't necessarily lead to happiness.
0: Um,
1: but but this poem I'm thinking of, Snogies, she says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles in the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal, animal of, of, your, of body. your body love, love what, it loves. what it loves. Isn't that wonderful?
0: Love. Yeah, she nails it. I mean, it's, she goes straight for the jugular on that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she does. And I think that kind of gets back to that, that moment uh, there with my dad on his passing. Uh, We, we try to think our way into living. We, we (laughs) should do the opposite of that. We should live our way into new ways of thinking Hmm. and let ourselves love, let ourselves be with the experience of being alive.
0: What do you wish everybody knew?
1: Yeah, I think it, it really does have a lot to do with, with this topic that, that we're talking about. I think that, I think that what I wish that I knew at 18 uh, was a kind of inevitability to life. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to work out. It's going to, it's going to be what it has to be. See, like the truth is that. The the judgments that my dad made of me that I remember so vividly when I was 16 that would set into effect certain movements that would create a kind of self that was pushing away from him for so much of my life. That then later I would regret immensely. Later I would repent from and say, oh my God, how did I do that? Why why did I allow him to shape? Well, all those things were so necessary. I mean, all those things were so important, and and you know, uh, towards the end of of my father's life, as I was watching him, you know, there there was a kind of um, oh, I don't know, like almost Dylan Thomas, like pleading with my father, like, "No rage, rage against the the dying of the light." I want you to 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 not go so fast. And I think that that all those heavy, hard conversations I thought we needed—there was an inevitability; it was going to happen anyway. Oh my God! I thought this had to happen, and this had to happen, and if it didn't, this, then it meant it was all wrecked. No, life is going to to take its course. Life is going to actually flow exactly as it needs to. You better damned well enjoy it along the way. Soak it up.
0: That's a stunning place to just let that be savored for a second. That's just, you just gave us all such a gift. Thank for you. Allowing mm.
1: allowing me to be here,
0: uh, to share those thoughts. The thing we all run out of is time. Yeah. And so I, I recognize and just grateful for every moment. Before we, um, before we sign off, I'd love to just hear from you about what you're working on next. I know you have a new book coming out in the fall. Your book as you are is stunning. Mm. It's not only like physically stunning, but also a a stunning um, thing to ingest um, mentally, emotionally, but um, your new book love against time, I believe.
1: That's right. You know, I, I I haven't, uh, I haven't, told too many people that title, Yet, I, I, I I love this title because it sums up for me almost everything that we're talking about. One, the impermanence of everything. Oh my God, don't we cling? Don't we, don't we hold? We, oh my, and, and seeing my mother there as in the scene I've described, holding, please, please, please. You know, we lose everything. We lose lovers, and friends, and jobs. We lose it all. It all goes away, but love. What is love? Love is always not not something in and of itself. It's always life is on a runway taking off, and love is this tender-hearted lover running after it, trying to hold one moment, saying, "Please stay, please, please, please." Love is eternity wrapped up in a moment or fifty-five years. Love is an eternity inviting us to fully live. That's what love is. So this, this upcoming book is really a collection of thoughts and stories and poems focusing us on the taking the camera and, and shoving our faces up into these moments of love set against time. And uh, I'm so excited to share it with the world. I, I literally can't wait. If you if you want to know more about it, get on my mailing list, and you'll be one of the first to know. You can find that link in uh, my bio on Instagram or over at my website. You can sign up for the mailing list, uh, RainierWild.com.
0: Beautiful. And can, where can we connect to you on Instagram and all of those places?
1: Rainier Wild is where I move and have my being, and you can connect to me there. You can also go over to my Substack. Uh, into the wild and join me there. I also teach a writing course. Uh, I say writing course. It's really all about writing yourself into being. And uh, and it's all about creating the kind of life that you want. We use creators and artists, writers uh, of all kinds um, as inspiration and jumping off points. I teach that class once a month. And then we we spend the whole rest of the month kind of unpacking that together. And it's it's become quite the community over there. you could find that also on my website.
0: Beautiful. Rainier, thank you so much for your presence and for your stories and your truth and your authenticity. Just deep bow. Deep deep bow. Mm. Thank you, Alexa. Guys, thank you so much for being here, taking the time out of your day to connect, to get altered what a gift if you like this episode please do share it share it with someone who could benefit from it share it on social media we need to have these conversations we need to have free content that we can integrate into our lives so share it it would mean so much to me and it will probably mean something to whoever you share it with uh, again if you haven't already please do leave us a five star review and a written review wherever you listen to this podcast it will help us so much and Do the best. Thanks so much.